Revelation chapter 3 and looking at verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the f- Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. We've heard already from Pastor McIntosh last night how God, or actually it was from Doug Batchelor, how God would prefer that we were zealous than that we were lukewarm or otherwise. But I'd like you to notice particularly what Jesus offers to Laodicea in verse 18. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. And what does it say? White raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. Maybe I can, in my own mind, think of four different theories about this white raiment. There would be the theory that the white raiment represents the righteousness of Jesus that covers up the way I'm living. There would be the theory that the white raiment is the righteousness of Jesus that covers up the way I've lived in the past. And there would be the theory that the white raiment is actually the way that I am living. And there would be the idea that the white raiment, well, the other idea I'll say for a moment because it wouldn't fit with this verse at all. And the questions we want to address this morning is what kind of white raiment is this that Jesus wants us to buy? The first observation make in this passage, can someone see if we're not clothed? What does it say in Revelation 3.18? I counsel thee to buy of me white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, lest the shame of thy nakedness to say? Yeah, that it do not appear. That's it. There is a nakedness that can appear. Can someone see whether or not Jesus is in your heart? Turn us in your Bibles to Colossians 3. Colossians chapter 3. We're looking for some evidence of a of a righteousness or of a white robe that if we're missing it, we appear naked in the eyes of some some entity. Colossians chapter 3. And looking at verse... Give me just a moment. Colossians chapter 3 and looking at verse 9. To be found in him, that is Jesus, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. It's because of verse 9 that many have concluded that the white robe of Christ's righteousness really is not related to, to what I do, like the way I live. Is it clear in verse 9 that I don't earn my white robe? I said Colossians 3. And that's why I wanted you to read. I just read Philippians 3, 9 out loud. Excuse me. Colossians Colossians 3. And look at verse 10. And we'll go to Philippians 3, 9 in a moment. Colossians 3, verse 10. And hath put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Verse 11. Excuse me, verse 12. 
Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Are the characteristics in verse 12 ones that can be seen or ones that are invisible? Certainly, someone can see whether or not we have put on, as the chosen of God, mercies and kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Look at verse 13. Forbearing one another, forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ also forgave you, so, so also do ye. Verse 14, And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfection. It's this verb, put on, put on, put on, that I'm referring to. It's the idea of clothing or something that you wear. Look up at verse 8. Colossians 3 and verse 8. But now also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man. The picture in Colossians 3 is that there is a garment that I take off and there is a garment that I put on. The idea in Colossians 3 is that the garment that I take off is one that is summarized as serving the flesh, the acts of the flesh. We, we skipped verse 3 and 4, which says, Mortify therefore the deeds of the flesh, and it begins to list them. And what is it that's renewed in verse 10? It says that the knowledge is renewed after the image of him that, well, it's the one that created us. This is what I was referring to this morning when I talked about how our imaginations exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. That God gave us our imagination as a tool for our mind to become holy, for our mind to latch on to things that are noble. This morning, Pastor McIntosh read you Second Corinthians 3.18. He read to you how that were changed from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. I want to say these thoughts simply. I, I have this feeling of rambling feeling as I got lost in Philippians. I, want you, I don't want you to have that feeling. There is a righteousness of Jesus that fills the Christian life that when it is lacking makes the Christian look naked, as described in Revelation chapter 3. There is a righteousness of Jesus that is anything but, but a covering of a filthy life. If I were to say that this tarp is made out of cement, I would be speaking erroneously. Human words are descriptive. They say what is false or they say what is true. How does that differ from the word of my Savior? If he were to say that this tarp is made out of cement, it might not be true when he said it, but his words would go on a mission and they would make it so before they returned unto him. Was it St. Isaiah 55? My words will not return unto me void. They will accomplish the thing whereunto I sent them. This is the idea of the righteousness of Jesus when Jesus says to me, Eugene, you are righteous. It might not be so when he says it, 
But those words are not a covering of a filthy life. They are a filling and a changing of a filthy life. That is, you cannot separate in any way the imputing and the imparting of the righteousness of Jesus. Imputing and imparting are words we don't use so much anymore. And we will go on in a Bible study in a moment, but I just want to speak about that for a moment. If I were to give you a $20 bill, I would be imparting to you money. If I were to say you are rich, I would be imputing to you money. For humans, imputing and imparting are so different that it's very important that we know which is going on. Whether someone is imputing to us righteousness, which is the only thing that humans could even do, or whether, if it was God, he was imparting to us righteousness. But I hope you can understand that when we come to God, there is not nearly as great a divide between imparting and imputing as there is if it was a human that was doing the imparting and the imputing. God cannot impute without imparting. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 3 again. But we're looking back. We want to just observe something about two white robes in Revelation 3. When I say two white robes, I'm not referring to the imputed robe and the imparted robe. Revelation chapter 3, we're looking at verse 4. You have a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. Is it clear to you in Revelation 3, 4, that we have garments and metaphor that we could defile, and that most of the people in the time of Sardis did defile their garments? but that there were some who did not defile their garments? Listen carefully to verse 4. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The entire passage just strikes as strange to many ways of thinking today. First of all, the very idea of being worthy. We know, I think it's been established so well in our minds, that there's nothing we can do to earn anything from heaven. It should be a good question to us, in what sense is it that those in Sardis are worthy to wear white robes? But also I'd like you to observe, does it look like they're wearing white robes now in Revelation 3-4, or like the white robes are a future development in their experience? It's a future experience. At the present, they have not defiled their robes, but in the future, they're going to wear a white robe. Look at verse 5. He that overcometh... Can you overcome without the help of Jesus? Without the indwelling of the power of Jesus? Certainly anyone who overcomes, in one sense, is filled with Jesus. Surely their sins are forgiven. Surely they are covered. But read carefully what the verse says. He that overcometh the same, what does it say? Shall be clothed in white raiment. They're an overcomer now, and they will wear white raiment at some point. 
it says, And I will not blot out name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The same idea of a future white robe is found in Revelation chapter 6. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation. Revelation chapter 6. And we're looking at verse 9. Revelation 9 is the fifth seal. So it's just before that seal that describes the second coming of Jesus. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them which were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Are we talking about people who had Jesus in their heart at the point of death? These are men who in every sense were forgiven. Jesus was in their heart. They had an experience of Christianity. Listen to the passage. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? So here we have souls speaking in metaphor like the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cried out from the ground for vengeance. And what does the blood of these saints cry out for? You know, it cries out for vengeance. The blood of those who have been slain cries out for vengeance, not because the saints are vindictive, but because of justice. I mean, justice is represented as their blood crying out for, for vengeance. Listen to verse 11. And white robes were given unto, what does it say? Every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season. So we can, we can address some questions. Did they receive these white robes at the moment they gave their life to Jesus? Is it clear? In the, did they get it when they gave their life to Jesus in this passage? No. Certainly not. Did they get this white robe when they died? No. Will they get this white robe when Jesus returns in the clouds of glory? Yes. Read carefully. They received the white robe. Is it the end of the world yet? No. They should rest yet for a little season. I'm going to tell you what I understand, and I think I can show it to you. This is the white robe received when their name came up in judgment, the judgment that began in 1844. If I could say it to you as simple as possible, Revelation 6 proves that there is a time when Mars receive a white robe. It's a time that is near the end of verse history, but not at the end. It's after the persecution of the Middle Ages and prior to the persecution of the very end of time. And in between those two times, after the death of the saints, the saints are given white robes. Go back to Revelation 3 and look at verse 5. Revelation chapter 3. We've already read verse 5. We're just going back to observe it again. He that overcometh shall be clothed in white raiment. I've proposed to you from Revelation 6 that it's referring to the investigative judgment. Does the context back it up? Let's keep reading. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before the Father and before the angels. When does Jesus confess names before the Father and before the angels? It's in the investigative judgment that's going on now. In fact, when you... When you read about the investigative judgment, angels are pictured as being there. In Daniel 7, you have, sure enough, 10,000 angels that are working as agents in the judgment, but then you have 100 million who are apparently there as, as witnesses. Who is the judgment for? There are some enemies of Adventism who have, who have attacked the judgment on a very silly ground. 
they've attacked it like this by saying, God already knows those that are his, so he doesn't need a judgment. But the Bible has never, ever indicated that the judgment is for the knowledge of God. Who is the judgment for? The judgment going on now is for the angels. They are the witnesses, and the Father and Jesus, they are the agents that are being vindicated by this judgment. When do I receive my white robe? This white robe of Revelation 3 and Revelation 6? It's when my name comes up, and when Jesus says before the Father and before the angels, my blood, Father, my blood, when my sins are blotted out, that's when I have a white robe. So when I titled this talk, Two Essential White Robes, I've just told you about the second one. The second essential white robe is one that you cannot possibly have at the moment. It's one that you will not have until your name comes up judgment. It's You can be converted today, you could die today, and when your name comes up in judgment, that is when you are given in this metaphor a white robe that represents the entire erasure of your sins from the books of record so that it will be forever as if you had never sinned. I feel like reading to you from the testimonies. And I have a bunch of them right there. You don't mind it? Yeah, okay, I'll do it. I'm reading to you from a book called Adventist Home on page 518. Listen carefully. Professed Christians who are superficial in character and religious experience are used by the tempter as his decoys. This class are always ready for the gadgets for pleasure or sport, and their influence attracts others. Young men and women who have tried to be Bible Christians are persuaded to join the party and they are drawn into the ring. They do not prayerfully consult the divine standard to learn what Christ has said in regard to the fruit to be born on the Christian tree. They do not discern that these attainments are really Satan's banquet, prepared to keep souls from accepting the call to the marriage supper of the Lamb, listen, and preventing them from receiving the white robe of character, which is the righteousness of Christ." they become confused as to what it is right for them as Christians to do. They do not want to be thought singular and naturally inclined to follow the example of others. I partially read it to you for the benefit of young people who ought to hear the counsel, but did you catch the theological statement in the middle? It talked about the white robe of character, which is the righteousness of Christ. And it sounded very much as if it was related to how we live our life. That was page 518. This is from Christ's Object Lessons, page 299. The Lord desires us to appreciate the great plan of redemption, to realize our high privilege as the children of God, and to walk before Him in obedience with grateful thanksgiving. He desires us to serve Him in newness of life with gladness every day. He longs to see gratitude welling up in our hearts because our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, because we may cast all our care upon Him who cares for us. 
He bids us rejoice because we are the heritage of the Lord. Listen, because the righteousness of Christ is the white robe of his saints, because we have the blessed hope of the soon coming of our Savior. If there's something that ought to make us happy, it's that we're covered with the robe of Christ's righteousness. That is, that we're wearing it. But what we read in Colossians 3, it gave an idea that when you wear the robe of Christ's righteousness, it's a very practical robe. There is an entire section in this book, Christ's Object Lessons, that's about this topic. It's from page 310 to 312. I want to read you just a little bit of it. By the wedding garment in the parable is represented the pure, spotless character which Christ's true followers will possess. To the church it is given that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. That's quoting Revelation 19.8. What does it say in Revelation 19.8? It says that the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Did you catch what we'd already read? It is the spotless character which Christ's true followers will possess. I guess the thought I've said a few times, now I'll just say it again as emphatically as I can, is Christ never offered to cover a filthy character with his own life. He never has offered this. He's offered to fill us, to change us, and to give us the white robe that is his own character. It really is quite different. So what is justification by faith? Did you hear the lady's question? You probably didn't. I'll, tell, I'll just kind of say it out loud. So the question that was asked is, what is justification by faith? Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Maybe I'll say one point that might just make it easier to read what we're about to read. The white robe and forgiveness are not synonymous in Scripture. Forgiveness precedes the white robe and the judgment by quite some period of time. And forgiveness accompanies the giving of the white robe of character, but they are not the same thing. Romans chapter 4, we're looking at verse 19. Speaking of Abraham, it says, And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, being about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. We're talking about the faith of Abraham. It deserves at least a few comments. When Abraham had a promise of God, what were some things he did not even think about? You know, one of them was his age and his weakness. I heard some allusions this morning about, and this is a true thought to an extent, about how the young people have the energy to do God's work. That's true to an extent. It's also true that Abraham became a model for Christian living when he was about 100 years old. Yeah. 
So it's only true to an extent. Verse 20, Abraham staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. How is it that if there was a promise that you could trip and fall over it? That really is the subject of the next breakout session, unbelief and unworthiness. But it's plain in this passage it would be through unbelief. Verse 21, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Now here is where there's a similarity and a difference between Abraham and me. What God promised Abraham is that he would be the father of many nations. What God promised me is that the Holy Spirit would be willing to live inside of me and to live through me. I don't mean that promise wasn't made to Abraham, but Abraham's promise wasn't made to me. That is, God never promised me that I would be the father of many nations. But has God made promises to us? He has. And Abraham was persuaded that God's promise to him could be fulfilled. Verse 21, verse 2022. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. There is the thing that when Abraham believed what God said, God said to Abraham, you are righteous. When Abraham lived as though God's word was true, God said, Abraham, you are righteous. And that statement is justification by faith. It was God imputing to Abraham righteousness. Was that the end of God's work with Abraham? The word that imputed to Abraham righteous, righteousness went on a mission and began to change Abraham. And when you next see Abraham, you know what you're going to find out about him? He's a thoroughly righteous man. That is, that the word of God accomplished the thing that it was sent to do. It began to work inside of and to change Abraham. So that justification by faith begins at the same time as sanctification by faith, but sanctification just keeps on a-happening. The fact that it's hard to make this simple, when it's so very simple, is proof that we have not spent enough time on the most basic things in Christianity. Did that make sense to what I just said? So I'm going to try to say this again and move on to another passage. God's word says that a man is righteous and that man is forgiven. But in heaven, his sins are still there and on earth, his character is about to be transformed. When do the records in heaven change? That's in the judgment and that is the giving of a white robe. That white robe has never been any other color. It's just white. What about the robe that I'm wearing now? You know it requires washing? Turns me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16. And we're looking at verse 15. Revelation 16, verse 15 has become one of my most favorite passages in all of the Bible. It's just an incredible passage for people who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the saints. 
I think if you read it briefly, you'll see why. Behold, I come as a thief. What goes on in Revelation chapter 16? What's the main subject of this chapter? It's the seven last plagues. And verse 15 is past or in the middle of the fifth or sixth one. And is Jesus already as a thief or is that yet future? Is it just very obvious that it's yet future? Do you see how beautiful this passage is? Here we are in the middle of the tribulation. If the question is, is Christ's thief coming before the tribulation or after it, what could be a simpler verse to help us than if in the middle of it, Jesus says, I'm coming as a thief soon. How many of you can understand what I'm saying? It's totally unrelated to everything else I'm speaking about right now, except that it's in the same verse. I'll say it one more time. Here the tribulation starts in Revelation 16.1. We end up in the middle of the tribulation, and then Jesus says in the middle, I'm coming soon as a thief. Does Jesus come as a thief before the tribulation or after the tribulation? It's so obvious it can't be before if in the middle of it he says it's still future. That's what I'm trying to say. It's just a beautiful, simple passage. If you never noted that it said that, there it is. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments. Keepeth his garments? Do you know the garments that I'm wearing now need to be kept? And in Revelation 7, it says they need to be washed. They're washed in the blood of the Lamb. Here they're kept. It says here, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. There are angels currently examining the books of record and they are seeing the shame of very many people who claim to be Jesus. Excuse me, claim to be like Jesus or claim to be Christians. They are seeing the shame of those who took the name of Jesus, but their character never reflected his. And in the judgment, those names will be blotted from the Lamb's book of life. But they observe others who, what do we read in Revelation 3, 4? Others who had not defiled their robes. And for that class, Jesus confesses them before the Father and before his angels, and they are worthy, and so they are given in the judgment a white robe. Turn to Revelation 3, verse 7. That's not what I meant to say. I meant Revelation 7, and I don't mean verse 3. Revelation chapter 7, and we're looking at verse 14. And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. The question is, who are these that are arrayed in, arrayed in white robes? And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation. In a way, it sounds like the class we read about in Revelation chapter 6. And have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of, what does it say? Of the Lamb. The Bible represents me as wearing a type of robe right now. And it uses this metaphor of me wearing a robe in a couple different ways, and maybe that's one of the reasons we get confused. For example, there is a robe of, of what I deserve, and the Bible characterizes that as filthy rags, so that there's nothing any man can ever do to deserve forgiveness. 
that is, when we talk about the robe of Christ's character, I am to live, that robe is nothing like merit. The white robe that your neighbors will, will perceive in you, maybe I should be careful how I call it a white robe, it's a robe that's being washed, it's a robe that's being kept, it's a robe that needs to be put on, but when we read about these white robes, you know what it sounds like we get them? It sounds like the judgment. But here's the robe that I'm wearing. It's one that I'm washing, I'm keeping, I'm taking care of it. The robe that they see, the robe that if I'm not wearing this robe of Christ's righteousness, the Bible says that I am naked, and so do the angels, and so do my neighbors. And the angels say it's a shame, and my neighbors say it's a shame, and Jesus denies me if I don't wear this robe. That robe can never earn me anything like forgiveness. The robe isn't forgiveness. The robe is a character. And if you'll just think about it, which is more like clothing, a character or forgiveness? I'm just suggesting to you that the metaphor used in the Bible is a sensible one. That when the Bible uses the metaphor of clothing, it's just a very sensible metaphor for the character that Jesus wants to give to his followers. I want to read you some more so you don't think I'm making this all up. This is from The Great Controversy. It happens to be from the 1988 edition Probably it's just the same in the 1911. It just so happens to be I found it here first. It says, In the parable of Matthew 22, the same figure of the marriage is introduced. Page 428. The same figure of the marriage is introduced, and the investigative judgment is clearly represented as taking place before the marriage. Previous to the wedding, the king comes in to see the guest, to see if all are attired in a wedding garment. The spotless robe of character washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. He who is found wanting is cast out, but all who upon examination are seen to have the wedding garment on are accepted of God and are accounted worthy of a share in the kingdom and a seat upon his throne. The work of examination of character, of determining who are prepared for the kingdom of God, is that of the investigative judgment, the closing work in the sanctuary above. When the work of investigation shall be ended, when the cases of all those who in all ages have professed to be followers of Christ have been examined and decided, then and not till then, probation will close and the door of mercy will be shut. These ideas are not at all complex if we really believe that God's word has power. If we don't believe that, they're inexplicably hard to understand. How could it be that Jesus could at the same time forgive me of my sins and say that it's not works that get me to heaven and at the same time judge me by my character? That would be an unanswerable question if God's word did not have creative power. But if God's word does have creative power, the question hardly needs to be asked. So that the very God who grants me forgiveness, the God who says that I am righteous, works in me by his spirit 
and gives me his own righteous character. He, how he does that, we haven't even hardly discussed. only said that it's his power and that he does it. Then what does the judgment do? It evaluates those who really were justified. Because those who really were justified, the evidence is that they really have been transformed. Or maybe they were justified and did not keep their robes. How many of you are taking notes on anything I'm saying right now? I just want to see. Okay, for the benefit of those who are, have pen and paper, I'm going to give you a list of verses right now. And maybe we'll look at a few of them, but we certainly won't look at all of them. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 11, verses 19 through 22. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 through 39. Matthew chapter 24, verses 12 through 14. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. And that's enough to establish the point. What do those verses say? They all, in a variety of ways, say that he that endures unto the end, the same shall be saved. One of them says that it'd be better for us not to know the way of righteousness than after we have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to us. One of them says that we are his building if we, if we hold on to what he has given us to the end. One says that we're saved by the gospel if we keep it in memory, otherwise we have believed in vain. One says that you stand by faith, but take heed lest you fall. And it indicates that if, you, this is the Romans 11 one, that if you fall, that you also will be cut off. And if others believe, they can be grafted back in. But listen, they all say the same thing, just in different ways. What do they say? They say that in the judgment, there are two questions being evaluated. One, were you ever truly justified? Did you ever really live by faith? And the second question is, did you hold on to your faith until the end? For the Bible speaks about those who have damnation, for they have cast off their first faith. I think that's 1 Timothy 5.12, and I really don't know. Maybe I can find it for you just a minute. It is. 1 Timothy 5.12, it says, having damnation because they have cast off their first faith. Before I get a white robe in the judgment... What are the angels evaluating? It's, did I wear a white robe here? What are they evaluating? Was I washing my robe? Was I keeping my robe? Those are the two questions. Let me say those again. The question of judgment are, was I washing my robe? That is, was I, going, was I doing the work of comparing myself to the life of Jesus... Did I put away my sins? Did I turn away from, from the corruptions in my character? Did I escape the corruption that is in the world through lust? Was I washing my robe in the blood of Jesus? And what's the other question? Did I keep my robes? 
If the answer to either question is negative, then what is blotted from the books? It's my name. If the answer to both questions is positive, what is blotted from the books? It's my sins. When the judgment is over, there's no sinner in the book. There are men with perfect records and no one else. Turn us to Bibles to Matthew, chapter 4. I won't be reading you any more testimonies. My computer got very tired. Matthew chapter 4, and we're looking at verse 4. But he answered and said, It is written, Men shall not, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. There's something interesting about this passage, and that is that the idea is in the Bible three times. It's in Deuteronomy, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's in Matthew 4.4 4 and Luke 4.4. 4. And it might be somewhere else too, probably in John 6. What am I saying? There is a way to live, and that way to live is by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now compare that to a few other passages. Turn to me in your Bibles, for example, to Habakkuk. Probably that's the hardest one to find. Habakkuk, and we're looking at chapter 2. Habakkuk is one of three prophets in the Bible that was very perplexed by the question, why does God allow sin and suffering? Asaph was perplexed about that question. Jeremiah was perplexed about that question. All three of them dared to ask God about that question. I'm just telling you this while you're trying to find the book. And the answer that God gave to Habakkuk was the judgment. The judgment is God's answer to why he allows sin and suffering. That is, everything is made right. The answer God gave to Asaph was the sanctuary. You can see their end in the sanctuary. Either there are two different answers to those questions, or else those are the same answer. And I go with the latter. What did Asaph see in the sanctuary? He saw the judgment. That is the end of those who have done wrong. It's the answer to the question, why does God allow sin and suffering? But we're in Habakkuk chapter 2 and looking at verse 4. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Now, it's a true thing. It's always been true that the just live by faith. But maybe it's interesting to you that in the context, this is speaking about the early Adventist. The context of Habakkuk 2.4 is the great disappointment of 1844. In the context of 1844, the Bible said that the man who turns back from his confidence, that's the man in whom God will have no pleasure, I'm quoting Hebrews 10. But the man who holds on to it, that is the man who lives by faith, he's the man who is just. You know what's interesting about this passage? You can find it in several other places in the Bible. You can find it in Romans 1, for example, and you can find it in Galatians. You can find it, it's in there. Now follow me closely. The just shall live by faith. 
the just shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith. Man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Either there are two ways to live, or living by faith is living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do you follow my logic of what I just communicated to you? Well, anyway, the second thing is the answer. What is faith? Faith is living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then if we ask the question, what is justification by faith? We're saying, it's, we could reword it, what is justification by living by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God? And this is the answer. When you live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, God says you are righteous. His word goes on a mission and it changes the way you are, your impulses. It changes the strength of your will. It strengthens you in your inner man so that you're set free so that you can do, so you can have freedom from your sins. And that word continues working in you. Are all of God's creative works instantaneous? Be careful how you answer. It really isn't true that all of God's creative work is instantaneous. When God said, let there be light, that was instantaneous. When God said, be fruitful and multiply, that's still going on. Does that make sense to you what I just said? When God says that you are forgiven, that's instantaneous. When God says you are righteous, that's something more than saying you are forgiven, and that is still going on. That process is the process of sanctification by faith. I've only said the same thing about 90 times now. Does anyone have any questions before I go on? Yeah. Was it? I'll just repeat what you said. The sister was saying that it seems like if you're justified that you're also sanctified. And this is certainly true that any man who is currently justified is currently a sanctified individual. Sanctification is even a little bit more tricky than justification in terms of the use of the word. But it's easy for Seventh-day Adventists to understand even if it's difficult for everybody else. Let me tell you why. Today is the Sabbath. Is the Sabbath holy? Yes. It's such a tricky reality, though. The Sabbath is holy in the sense that it has been set apart for holy purpose. But are the people in Colfax keeping the Sabbath holy? In Colfax, there's kind of a strange situation. The Sabbath is holy, and it's being defiled at the very same time. Does that make sense to you what I just said? It was desecrated, right. It has been set aside for holy purpose, but it's not being used for holy purpose. In one sense, it's sanctified in Colfax. In another sense, it's desecrated in Colfax. Do you follow what I'm saying about the Sabbath? Yes. That is precisely why the Sabbath was made to be a sign of sanctification. 
the Sabbath was to teach us how sanctification works. Do you remember that, that the Sabbath is a sign of sanctification? Yes. It's part of our Bible saying the seal of God. That's, the Bible says it twice. Well, this is why. It's because when you give your life to Jesus, in one sense, you are sanctified. That is, you have been set aside by God for holy purposes. And His Spirit is working inside of you to change you. But does that mean that you're going to live the rest of your life appropriate for the fact that you're sanctified? You're under obligation to live as if you are a holy person. But maybe you will not do so. And that's what we read this morning in Hebrews 10, that if we sin willfully, after that we receive a knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for judgment. Do you remember that from Hebrews 10? It's talking about sanctification. That if you've only been sanctified in the first sense, but you don't cooperate with sanctification in the second sense, that is, you go ahead and do something that you know is wrong, are you still justified? You are not. That's what Hebrews 10 says. So Hebrews 10 testifies that justification stays with you until willful sin. At willful sin... That is, when you treat yourself as if you're not sanctified, you lose your justification. That begs a question that needs an answer. Maybe more than one, because I doubt you're thinking the one I am. What about unknown sin? Or even more particularly, what about sins that if I really had thought it through, I would have known it was wrong, but I didn't even think it through when I was doing it, and then afterwards, I think it through and realize I shouldn't have done that. Do you ever have something like that? Things that, if you really were thinking every sentence and act through, you would think, no, that's wrong. But turn me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 4. I already had the statements here, so it won't work. Leviticus chapter 4. The answer is in this passage several times. I just want to find a few of the best verses. Let's look at verse 13, for example. If the whole congregation of Israel sin through ignorance, and the thing be hid from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done somewhat against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which should not be done and are guilty... Is it possible for a whole group to sin through ignorance? You know, it's very possible. There are many churches here in California that in the music that they are performing on Sabbath and the way they're doing their worship service are directly contradicting what God has said in Second Selected Messages, page 36. Just blatantly. But there are many of them, I'm sure, congregations that just have no idea about that passage at all. I'm guessing that. What verse did I have you read? Is it 13? 13. Verse 14. When the sin which they have sinned against it is known, then the congregation shall offer a young bullock for the sin. This same idea is in the passage several times. It's just the one I highlighted on. 
When are they responsible to offer sacrifice? It's when they know. Listen, it's this, this is a symbol of how Christianity works. When are you obligated to repent of your sins? It's when you know them. So you do wrong, but you don't know it's wrong, and then you learn that it was wrong. Did you lose your justification here? No. And when you get to here, if you repent, you never do lose your justification. But if at this point you refuse to offer sacrifice, that's a metaphor, or in the reality, if you refuse to let go of the sin, even though you didn't do it willfully, you have just cherished it willfully. And it's the same thing as Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verse 22. Leviticus 4.22 When a ruler hath sinned and done somewhat through ignorance against any of the commandments of the Lord his God concerning things which should not be done and is guilty. Or if his sin wherein he hath sinned listen carefully come to his what does it say? Knowledge. Knowledge. He shall bring an offering. When is the ruler obligated to bring an offering in that second situation? You know, it's when the sin comes to his knowledge. It's not necessarily when he did it. It might be when he did it that he was just totally oblivious to the fact of what he's doing. But does the Spirit bring back to our minds the things that we've drawn? The Spirit is active in helping us to put away these blots on our character. And when it comes to his mind, he's obligated to offer sacrifice. What's it mean for us? So that thing that I didn't know was wrong, well, really, I would have known, but I just had not thought it through. When it comes to my mind, that moment, what am I to do? Repent. I repent now as if I had done it now, and I never lose my justification. But if I cherish it now, it's as if it was a willful transgression. And justification is over, and sanctification well, it's ended. I mean, because I refused it. Let me say these thoughts again, and I'll ask if anyone else has a question. Do I need to live in jeopardy every hour, never knowing if, if I'm going to make it in the end? Jesus is the author and the finisher of my faith, and I can speak with confidence that I am going to be in heaven. I'll tell it to you. I believe that I am going to make it. Not because of any confidence in myself, but because of confidence that Jesus will finish the work that he started in me. But I don't presume that I'm going to make it. I'm depending on him to finish the work. And I understand that if a sin comes to my mind, I'm obligated at that point to put it away. That's washing my robe in the blood of the lamb. They offered sacrifice. It was the blood of a lamb. I take advantage of the blood of the Lamb to wash my robe. I choose to hold on until the very end. I choose to keep my robe and to wash my robe. If you had to study with me tonight and revealed to me that something I was doing was a sin, and I saw it in Scripture, at the moment that I saw it, I would be obligated to repent of that thing, to turn away from it. And then I, I've had no, I've had an unbroken communion with God. Am I sanctified? I don't want to say it's tricky, like, like a puzzle is tricky. 
but there are two types of sanctification. There's the type of what I've been set apart for. I've been set apart for holy purpose, and yes, I am sanctified. In that sense, Paul could say to the Corinthian church, to those which are sanctified in Christ Jesus, was the church set aside for holy purpose? It was. But were they all treating themselves as if they were set aside for holy purpose? No, many of those sanctified people were living unsanctified lives. Did you, did you understand that sentence? They were set aside and not living as if they were. But if they don't live as if they're set aside, they lose their justification. So that though they are in a body, a sanctified church, they're unjustified persons, unsanctified persons inside a sanctified body. The body I was speaking of wasn't this thing. I'm talking about the church. Does anyone else have a question before we go on? I don't want to lose anyone in this business. So, so let me ask a question. Then, um, you lose your justification. Some sins you cherish, or uh, you, you were not willing to give up sins. What happened? For you, it's like time is allowed. Then you go through, if you come through enough time, you then claim it again, and then uh, renew your commitment to the Lord and uh, renew your uh, conviction to give up sins next time? How does that process work? Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians. I'll repeat your question in a moment. Colossians, I think it's chapter 4. Someone tell me if it's Colossians 4, 6. I'm looking for the passage that says, As you have therefore received the Lord Jesus, so walk ye in him. Galatians, Ephesians. Does anyone know where it's at? As you have therefore received the Lord Jesus, so walk ye in him. I'll preach on it. 2.6. It's 2.6. Look at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. It is just the most beautiful little passage. How do I receive the Lord Jesus? You know, I walk as if, I live as if his word is true. I accept the sacrifice made in my behalf. I turn away from my sins. This is what we did when we gave our lives to Jesus. So how do I live the Christian life? That's how I get started. How do I live the Christian life? Ditto. Right? As you have therefore received the Lord Jesus, so walk ye in him. Well, what if I lose the Lord Jesus? How do I get back to him? You know, it's the same way that you received him the first time, and it's the same way that you walked in him in the meantime. It's faith and repentance. That's what it is. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, and we're looking at verse 4. It says, Do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads thee to repentance? But is it obvious to you that the goodness of God doesn't lead everyone to repentance? I mean, God has been good. This is the most famous saying from the Caribbean, and now it's become international. God is good. What's that say? All the time. All the time. And God is good to everyone. 
But not everyone repents. The passage is speaking about how I relate to my brother. That if I don't cherish God's mercy in relating to my brother, that I'm hardening my heart against God's own, his own mercy to me. And when I harden my heart to his own mercy to me, I really make it difficult to repent. I mean, for me to repent. So let me say this thought a different way. When does God's mercy lead me to repentance? It's when I cherish it, when I think about it, when I practice it, and not when it just happens to be true. That is, it's not when God is good to me. It's when I think about his goodness to me, when I practice his goodness to me, when I cherish his goodness to me, that when his goodness moves me to leave my sins. Look at Psalm 130. Psalm 130. And looking at verses 3 and 4, it's a very counterintuitive passage. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But doesn't God mark iniquities? I mean, at least the angels do. They mark down everything that I do and think and say, and God is going to bring all those things into judgment, whether they're good or whether they're bad. So the answer to verse 3 apparently is nobody. Verse 4 but there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be, what does it say? Do you understand what's counterintuitive about verse 4? There is forgiveness that thou mayest be feared? It would be more intuitive like this, that you're recording every sin, you should be feared. Or because you're recording everything, or because it's going to be a challenge to stand, you should... But what it connects fearing God with his forgiveness. Not everyone is in awe of the forgiveness of God. I mean that very many Christians, professed Christians, relate to God's forgiveness as if it's just about what they would naturally expect from someone as kind as the Father in heaven. Nor as they think about God like this, that he is so kind that it just makes sense that he would forgive me. And if that is the way that you think about God, his mercy to you will not lead you to repentance. It is when... His mercy to you seems unfathomable when you recognize how very, very wicked that you are, that you can grasp or you get a, a grip on how shocking it is that God would forgive you. Turn to Proverbs chapter 2 and look at verse 1. 
Proverbs 2 and looking at verse 1. It is incredible to me that I don't see a single person sleeping. I mean that I've been talking now for more than one hour with a nearly monotone voice. That's what I mean. You're in Proverbs 2, but would you stand up for just a moment? Because despite your ability to listen, I would like to make it easy for you. Okay, you may have a seat. Proverbs chapter 2, and we're looking at verse 1. My son, if you will receive my words and hide my commandments with you, if you incline your ear into wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry after knowledge and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hid treasures, listen carefully, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. What is the condition of understanding the fear of the Lord? It's going after truth with all of your heart. That's how I understand Psalm 130. When you go after truth with all of your heart, what you discover is that you do not measure up. You find to your shocking dismay that the robe that you're wearing is relevant to the judgment. I mean, the character that you have. And you realize that it needs some washing. Do you realize it needs some washing? And you find that God holds up a high standard and, he, and that Jesus would say things like, every idle word that men shall speak. When you study as for your life, you develop a concept of holiness that leaves you deficient. And you have this question in your heart, if you, Lord, mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? And then you find that there is forgiveness with you and it is incredibly amazing to you. In that situation only, God's goodness leads you to repentance. It's when you're duly aware of the depth of your sin and of the incredible kindness of God. And if I say the same thought I said earlier backwards... If it just seemed natural to you that a very nice God would treat you nicely in the judgment, you don't know how the judgment works, what God is like, how wicked you are. And you need to find out. So my intention was to read to you a great deal from the Spirit of Prophecy. And my intention did not follow through with bringing a power cord. That's why I'm just asking if you have any questions. Does anyone else have a question? Yes. Did you bring out what you were intending about the second type of sanctification? I did, but then it sounded like I'll say it again. I mean, there's the sanctification in that you're set aside, and there's the sanctification of treating yourself as if you're set aside. There's the fact that the Sabbath is holy, and then we need to keep it holy. Okay, so Mark, you said five minutes, is that right? I'm glad you said that, because I had a different number in my head. So we have to...
treat ourselves as if we've been set aside for holy purpose, and that is living the sanctified life. If a sanctified person lives a sanctified life, he's only doing what is appropriate. And if a person that is set aside for a sanctified life doesn't live that way, then he's counting the blood of the covenant as an unholy thing. And that's just a disaster in the Bible. So if I have five minutes, I'm not going to take any more questions, but it's going to repeat everything, and that will take about three minutes and we'll be done. There is a white robe mentioned many times in Scripture that is entirely future. Ours is the first generation that will ever have a chance to wear both white robes at the same time. But for all previous generations, they died with a robe of character that they washed in the blood of the Lamb and held on to with tenacity. They died with that character, and in the resurrection they're going to find that while they were dead, that they were given a pure, spotless robe. Won't they be thankful? Our generation will be judged the same way. Are we washing our robe? Are we keeping it? It just so happens that in our day that God is going to add such power to the work on this earth that if we really are washing our robe and keeping it, that our robe is going to become a very beautiful robe such that Jesus will come back to redeem his church because he says her robe has no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But the robe of character that his church cultivates here on earth, the robe that the world can see and that angels examine, is not the ultimate. Because nothing that I can do today or that the church can do today can atone for what it did yesterday. No righteousness of mine today can atone for yesterday's transgression. So that there's no robe that I can put on that really is thoroughly what I need. When do I get that pure spotless robe? It's in the judgment. In the meantime, I have forgiveness. But that forgiveness is a, it's a tentative thing. It's God saying he's not going to treat me as if I've sinned. He's going to give me access to grace, give me access to the Spirit, help from angels, treat me as if I am a son of God, until the judgment determines my case. And then my sins are blotted out or my sins are retained. Do I need that type of forgiveness? I need it. But what determines my destiny? It's the judgment. And what is examined in the judgment? The question is, did I wash my robe? Did I hold on to my robe? And if I did, then the character of Jesus that I lived is combined with the life of Jesus that entirely covers all my past transgressions. Only his life can cover my past. His life can live through my present. And those two ideas combined, the Bible calls a white robe, granted in the judgment to the saints. Is the Seventh-day Adventist Church sanctified? Yes. Is the Seventh-day Adventist Church sanctified? Yes and no. She has been set aside for holy purpose, but is not living as if she has been set aside for holy purpose. Yet she's still set aside for that, just like the Sabbath is. In my own life, it is the same. 
if I live as if I've been set aside, that is living a sanctified life. If I cherish a sin, my justification is no longer valid. If I find out that I sinned in the past, I must repent of it present. If a sin of the past comes to my mind that I haven't dealt with already, I must repent of it at the present. And if I do, then my justification is a consistent thing. And if I don't, I have not held my robe. And in the judgment, I have a fearful end. Unless I do repent. Lead me to repent. A considering of the mercy of God in light of how far I am from deserving any such thing. Let's bow our heads for a closing prayer. Our Father in heaven, I would take the scriptures that we have looked at, that you would use them as tools for the reshaping of our thoughts and our minds. I ask that you would strengthen the impact of anything I've said that is true, and that you would weaken the impact of anything I've said that misrepresents what is true. And I ask after in the name of Jesus, amen.